At this point, I would like to introduce the speaker for today. The speaker is Dr. Mark Sandilands. Uh, he is a professor emeritus with the University of Lethbridge, and he is also a candidate for the NDP for the federal election. Mark joined the university way back in 1968, actually one year after the university started. And he has been with the university for 32 years. Uh, his areas of interest include general social and environmental psychology, uh, personality factors in social behavior, social and environmental factors in institutional care of the elderly, and family violence research. Uh, like I said, he's a candidate uh, uh, for the NDP in the provincial election of 2001 and again 2004 and in the federal election of 2008. Uh, he also ran for a seat on the board of the Lethbridge Regional Hospital in 2001. He is a frequent contributor to the letters section of the Lethbridge Herald and other publications. There is one more thing that he didn't mention here, but I know about uh, Mark. I know him very well. And uh, Mark uh, was a, a good uh, uh, for the swimmers. Uh, I had all three girls of mine uh, swimming, and he was a, a very good coach. He not only coached them for their physical ability, but he also coached them in regard to their morale. So he really raised the morales of everyone in the, in the team. And... Uh, at this point, ladies and gentlemen, I would like to introduce to you Mark Sandilands. Please welcome him. Well, thank you, panel. Uh, just to, uh, to uh, alleviate some confusion that you might have caused, I came in 1968, but I retired in 2000. That's where the 32 years came. And 32 years of teaching uh, made me uh, very used to uh, lecturing for 50 minutes. So I'll be uh, severely constrained to stop at 12.30. But Pano has promised to, uh, to catch me uh, and, and warn me. The other thing I have to say, yes, I coached Pano's three daughters. Uh, I knew them as uh, Amanda, Alicia, and Irene. But Irene changed her name to Athena, and she now is a star of the uh, CBC television program, The Border. So if you hadn't noticed that in the credits, uh, that's Panel's daughter. And, and I'm thrilled uh, to, uh, to uh, have coached her when she was only that high. We used to call her, well, I won't say what we called her. <laughs> she talked a lot, though, and, and showed her skills. OK, so let's see if this thing works. Uh, there we go. Okay, so the topic today is why do good people commit evil acts? And I have to acknowledge the work of uh, um, Philip Zimbardo, uh, one of the world's preeminent social psychologists. He's former president of the Western Psychological Association, the American Psychological Association, and uh, he's still very active doing research on uh, this topic. His book, The Lucifer Effect, uh, has had a profound influence on thinking about uh, uh, things like torture 
and uh, prisons and so on, and I'll be referring a lot to his work during today's talk. So if you enjoy the talk, we have to give some a uh, good deal of the credit to uh, uh, Zimbardo's work. As uh, I said, I'm a social psychologist. Maybe I didn't say that, but uh, I'm a psychologist. A social psychologist is a uh, somebody who studies, uh, uses scientific methods to understand uh, thoughts, feelings, and behavior of individuals as they're influenced by actual, imagined, or implied presence of other human beings. So psychology is the study of individual organisms. Sociology is the study of the structures of society. And social psychology is the study of the interface between the structures of society, uh, the actual imagined or implied presence of uh, other humans, and uh, their individual behavior. <clears throat> if we uh, want to define uh, good, we say that it is... Uh, acts that are subjectively beneficial. They have to be subjectively beneficial to the recipient of the act, uh, and therefore good people would be ones who commit mostly good deeds. Evil is subjectively harmful deeds, more specifically the exercise of power to intentionally harm physically or psychologically, destroy people, or commit crimes against humanity. And it follows then that evil people do mostly evil deeds. Uh, I went on the Internet and looked. Uh, we always look on the Internet for things and found the list. And this is just one list of the top ten evil people. Thomas de Torquemada, the uh, Spanish Inquisition leader. Vlad Tepes, who's known as Vlad the Impaler. Adolf Hitler only comes third, Ivan the Terrible. Adolf Eichmann, who was uh, uh, Hitler's henchman, comes fourth or fifth. Pol Pot, the Cambodian uh, dict dictator, sixth. Mao Zedong killed millions of Chinese. Idi Amin from Africa, Joseph Stalin, and Genghis Khan. The same website shows uh, the uh, list of ten good, the top ten good people. We have uh, Buddha. Uh, I'm not sure how to pronounce this, but this is the founder of the Baha'i Faith. Faith, uh, the Dalai Lama, Jesus Christ, Moses, Mother Teresa, Abraham Lincoln, Martin Luther King, Mohandas Gandhi, and a tie for 10th with Vyasa and Solon. Vyasa is a, a central and revered figure in the majority of Hindu traditions, and Solon is an ancient Greek uh, statesman, lawmaker, and poet. He's remembered particularly for his efforts to legislate against economic and moral decline in uh, ancient Athens. So that uh, it occurs to me that, that uh, good people and people that we revere as uh, very good, we often call them humanists, uh, Mother Teresa, for example. And one characteristic of them is they don't discriminate. They, they accept everybody at face value. So we talk about Jesus Christ ministering to the poor. And uh, he tells the story of the Good Samaritan. And you remember the Samaritans were actually a very despised group by the, the Jews that he was talking to. Uh, but he picked uh, that particularly to tell the story that somebody that is despised can commit uh, and do a, a good act uh, who doesn't discriminate. Uh, and as we will talk about it later, uh, dehumanization uh, is, is a characteristic of evil people. They, they take a category of people and dehumanize them, and then atrocities are committed against them. 
Um, most people, however, have good and evil as part of them, and uh, they have the potential to commit evil. This uh, uh, painting, uh, graphic by uh, uh, Morris Cornelius Escher, uh, shows this. And if you look closely, you see at the white is the uh, angel figures. But if you focus on the black, uh, you have uh, devils or evil-looking people. We often talk of the story of Lucifer, the fallen angel. And the story of Lucifer actually comes to us from pagan traditions. Um, where uh, Lucifer fell from God's grace um, because he contrived to make his throne higher than the clouds over the earth and resemble uh, God's power. So he was hurled down by the angel Gabriel. Uh, This perpetuates the myth that people, or the notion, maybe not a myth, but the notion that people can become evil rather than saying that people commit evil acts. It's always interesting to look at uh, historical ideas. So the evil was uh, used to explain the Black Death uh, of the 14th century um, and often in the earlier centuries, possession by evil spirits was used to explain mental illness. It has a long history. Um, In an interesting uh, Google search, I put evil throughout history, history explanation, just those four words in the Google search box. And I found those, those uh, four, or sorry, those, those, uh, that, that graph, which is a, a cumulative graph. Now give me a little pointer here. Uh, whoops. Uh, okay. <coughs> Isn't this nifty? So uh, we have from 1800 to 2000. And you note that, and this is Google searching through documents, so it's, it's uh, affected by the uh, uh, prevalence of documents, the frequency of documents. There, there, weren't, there aren't any, many documents dating back to 1800 that are searchable online, which uh, contributes. Uh, but you would think that over the time they would increase, but actually the frequency of evil uh, rises and then falls, strangely, during 1940 and 1950s. And then it, it really spikes in uh, the late uh, 1980s, uh, perhaps because uh, uh, Ronald Reagan spoke of the, uh, the empire of evil. And then uh, right around 2001, 2002, George Bush talked about the axis of evil. So evil tends to pop up more and more in the, uh, in the late 19th and early 20th, sorry, late 20th and early uh, 21st century. So can good people commit evil? And the answer is yes, if there are these factors, which I will go into uh, as the talk progresses. Um, If we have conformity pressures, if we have blind obedience to authority, if we have de-individuation, and I'll discuss this at length, uh, if we have dehumanization, and if we have diffusion of responsibility, and I'll get into all of these as we progress. So conformity, the first one, is a very powerful force. And C.S. Lewis says, I believe that in all men's lives, one of the most dominant elements is the desire to be inside the local ring, the in-group, is his term for it, and the terror of being left outside. Of all of the passions, the passion for the inner ring is the most skillful in making a man who is not yet a very bad man do very bad things. And that essay called The Inner Ring is available online if you want to read the whole thing. 
So social psychologists have studied conformity uh, for many, many decades. Uh, some of the first work was done by Muzaffar Sharif, psychologist in Oklahoma, and uh, Solomon Ash, another psychologist, uh, did uh, some of the most uh, um, impressive work in the in 1950s. Uh, he gathered people together in groups uh, to judge, uh, strangely, the length of lines. So if you're looking at those lines, the one on uh, the left uh, in its box by itself is the reference line. Which of those three lines on the right is uh, identical to the one on the left? Well, most people would say C, the one on the far right. Um, and the, uh, the, the thing progresses with different line lengths. And then after they've done this for about three times, everybody agreeing, uh, the two people sitting on either side of the uh, picture there say, in this particular one, say, A is the one that matches the reference line. And the poor fellow in the middle, you can see it's kind of blurry, but you can see the expression of, what the heck is going on? Look, that's not what I see. And what, it, what they found was that 41% the people yielded to the group pressure. They said, um, the, uh, the, I agree with you guys. Something must be wrong with my eyes. Whatever you guys say. So conformity pressure is very strong. Well, Milgram, Stanley Milgram, a psychologist at Yale University, uh, decided to look for something a little bit more uh, in, in line with reality. So he advertised for people saying he wants, uh, uh, he wants to study them for uh, studies of memory. And social psychologists often do this. They, they say it's a, the study is about A, when really it's, a, it's about B. So he recruited a number of people, and he brought them into uh, a, uh, um, a laboratory, a psychology laboratory, uh, and told them it was a study of the effect of pain on learning. And he had a draw to decide which one would be the teacher and which one would be the student or the learner. This was supposedly random, but it was fixed because the, uh, the learner was really a confederate a, a, in, in cahoots with uh, Milgram. And uh, the teacher was the real subject. Uh, they were sat down at a device and said, okay, every time the learner makes a mistake, he's going to get an electric shock. Um, and this is to test if getting pain can help people learn. Um, so uh, they start at 15 volts, and the, the, uh, the teacher uh, gets a sample. and says, well, that's a bit painful. And then they say, you have to give an extra 15 volts every mistake. So it climbs. So they climb up. The, the, the strength of the, uh, the uh, um, shocks keeps climbing. And the person in the room is in a room separate from the, the, uh, um, the, the teacher. But you can hear him, but you can't see him. And actually what he's done is put on a tape to give the same response to every subject so that no matter who it is, it's an identical response. Uh, he says, ouch, that hurts. And then he says, oh, that's worse, that's worse. I, I don't want to do this anymore. And the, the, the uh, experimenter sitting there says, you must continue. And uh, then the, the uh, uh, up around 150 volts, uh, the, uh, the person says, my heart is bothering me. And the, uh, the teacher says, what, what should I do? The experiment requires you must continue. 
Now, how many people do you think would go all the way to 450 volts where the, the control console says, danger, extreme shock? Well, most people think, and, and some psychiatrists, even experts in human behavior, thought that around 1%, the real sadists in the group, would go all the way to the top. But in fact, almost two-thirds almost two-thirds of people in the condition I described to you uh, went all the way to the top. Um, and people were astounded at this. When they changed some of the variables, for example, going to a low prestige setting, uh, that's uh, number, uh, uh, the second one. Um, when they're sitting together in the same room, it's 40%. If they actually have to hold their hand on the shock pad, it goes down to 30%. Uh, if the, the experimenter's in another room, it goes down to 22%. If the person in charge doesn't seem to look particularly impressive, it goes down to uh, uh, 20%. And when there's two in the room and one of them says, I'm not going to do this, then it only goes it only 10% follow the directions. So almost everyone would be totally obedient or almost everyone would rebel or resist, depending on the situation. So it shows the power of the situation. Okay, our next factor in uh, creating people to do evil is called de-individuation. And what we have is the reduced cues of social accountability by the actor. So that people have ideas of being socially accountable. We know that we're responsible for our act. But under de-individuation, uh, we have reduced concern. We have reduced cues of social accountability. De-individuation is essentially an in anonymity. Uh, we have reduced concern for self-evaluation. Am I a good person? And this is reduced. Behavior comes under the control of uh, situation and biology, and the effects are, are amplified by novel situations. An anthropologist studied warriors' appearance, uh, wearing masks when they're fighting. And uh, it's either uh, changed or not changed. So if it's not changed, they don't wear masks. If it's changed, uh, they're wearing masks. And he assessed the extent to which they uh, kill, mutilate, or torture. And he found that uh, when it's not changed, seven um, are very unlikely, in other words, low likelihood of killing, and only one have a high likelihood. But when the ones are wearing masks, only three of uh, 13, three of 15, uh, kill, torture, or mutilate, but 12 kill, torture, or mutilate. So in across societies, de-individuation can lead to... Uh, uh, torture and, and atrocities. The next one is dehumanization, the process by which members of a group of people assert the inferiority of another group through subtle or overt acts of, or statements. We often find this in war. This is a poster from World War I uh, uh, for recruiting people for the U.S. Army. Uh, interestingly, in Alberta, we dehumanized rats uh, in the 1950s to get rid of the rats. Interesting uh, footnote to uh, this whole process. Obviously, rats are not human, but they use the same techniques that were used during World War II against the Germans and the Japanese to, to uh, demonize rats. 
there are notorious dehumanization examples. The rape of Nanking by the Japanese in World War II. The uh, My Lai massacre in Vietnam. And, of course, the atrocities in Rwanda that uh, Romeo Dallaire talked about. Okay, um, social psychologist Philip Zimbardo uh, got involved in uh, studying this ba way back in 1971 uh, in what's called the Stanford Prison Study. He took uh, 75 volunteers to, uh, recruited by that ad on the right. Uh, he selected 24 of the psychologically healthiest and physically healthiest people, and he randomly assigned them to be either prisoners or guards. And those who were prisoners were picked up by the real Palo Alto Police Department. Uh, there's a picture of the guard on the left, and you can see the, the de-individuation. He's wearing reflective sunglasses. Uh, the, the prisoners were uh, dehumanized. They were put in uh, smocks. Uh, they had uh, nylon stockings over their heads, and they were given numbers. They were referred to by numbers. Uh, they were asked to, uh, to do humiliating tasks, such as cleaning toilets by, with their bare hands. Uh, and only after three days, they planned to do this for two weeks to study the dynamics of prisons. Only after three days, people started to show ill effects, uh, extreme stress. Uh, situations do matter. Novel sittings, and we can't call on our previous guidelines for our, our behavior in a novel setting, and uh, this can lead to uh, the kinds of, of events that I've described. Uh, the reward structures are different for the, the guards. Uh, personality variables are not useful for predicting. Remember, they were randomly assigned, so the guards were no different from the prisoners at the start of this whole process. If you're interested, look up uh, Google Stanford Prison Experiment, and you find all kinds of stuff on it. So these five things can, uh, that I've talked about before, uh, except for the system, which I'll get into in a, in a minute, uh, are aspects of uh, shown by experiment to, to work. Zimbardo in, uh, 19, in 2004, when the, the uh, atrocities in uh, Afghanistan, uh, the Abu Ghraib prison became, came to light, um, noticed the similarities between his study and the, uh, the situation in Abu Ghraib. Uh, there's a uh, history of uh, what happened, and I'm going to show you some pictures. This is a picture of the prison uh, with no prisoners present, and uh, what follows is some uh, pretty bad pictures uh, that were taken by guards themselves. The one with the green gloves is punching somebody. What you notice a lot is nakedness in the prisoners and dogs. Now, for Muslims, being naked is a sin. And I've, I've noticed in some of my, my uh, Muslim colleagues at the university, when we go in the locker room, they do not stand around naked in locker room, which tends to be the norm. Uh, so it's very strong uh, constraint on their behavior. And they were being forced by the, the guards. Dogs are seen as uh, not the desirable animals in Muslim. That fellow there is called, the, uh, pardon my uh, Anglo-Saxon words, but he was called shit boy. And he'd cover himself with feces. He was mentally ill, and they had to roll him in dirt so that uh, he wouldn't smell too much. Obviously, he doesn't belong in a prison, but there they had him. Now, the, the guards were given the free reign 
to abuse these prisoners to soften them up for interrogation. But when the results came out, Rumsfeld said, oh, there's only a few bad apples. So did George Bush. Who are the bad apples? Zimbardo says we have to reframe the question. Uh, It could be who, but it also could be what. What's the situation? Dispositional uh, explanations of behavior, in other words, bad apple, does not work. What we have to do is look at the possibly the bad barrel, or even worse, who built the bad barrel. Uh, and this is the system, the agents and agencies whose ideology, values, and power create situations and dictate the roles and expectations for approved behavior of actors within a sphere of influence. The system is the final ingredient that causes good people to do evil. So there are the seven social processes that lead to evil. And I've gone through them before, so I won't take the time to read them because we're almost out of time. Um, In the words of Alexander Solzhenitsyn, if only there were evil people somewhere insidiously committing evil deeds, we could search them out and destroy them, he says. But the line dividing good and evil cuts through the very heart of every human being. So to make good people commit evil acts, we can dehumanize the victim. We say they're not all—they're not like us. They're different. Remember Rwanda? They talked about the uh, cockroaches. Deal with them. Uh, think about the, uh, the propaganda during World War II. Uh, we de-individuate the perpetrator. We say that you're acting as part of a group. Uh, you're part of a group, and you're anonymous uh, as being responsible for your acts. We provide a belief structure that justifies the evil acts. And we use other aspects of the powerful situation that we know can have a profound influence on behavior. So we should be aware that a range of apparently simple situational factors can function to impact our behavior more compellingly than seems possible. We call this a situational approach, and it redefines heroism. And the majority of ordinary people can be overcome by such pressures toward compliance and conformity. The minority who resist should be considered heroic. Think of the man who reported the Abu Ghraib atrocities. It was a single soldier, and he was threatened by his fellow soldiers with his life. His family was threatened for what he did, and he was a hero. We need to share a profound sense of personal humility when trying to understand unthinkable and unimaginable senseless acts of evil. Any deed for good or evil that any human being has ever done, you and I could also do, given the same situational forces. It becomes imperative to constrain our immediate moral outrage that seeks vengeance against wrongdoers instead to uncover the causal factors that could have led them to that aberrant direction. And we think finally of the good ones who see all humanity as one, who don't engage in dehumanization. We see these people as saints. They accept all races, all tribes, all classes, all conditions. They reject systems that forcibly define others as out. And I finished. Thank you very much. Right on the button.